Welcome to Stories with Drinks, where we over-psychoanalyze characters from your favorite movies, TV, and media. I'm Jennifer, she, her, hers. And I'm Tyler, he, his, him. And welcome back, y'all. We are so excited to share our newest adventure. Yeah. Trek. Before that, I just want to pop in. Did you know that we've done 20 episodes of this show? Is this, is this 21 or 20? This is this is tw- our, officially our 20th because I'm not counting the mini episode. That would have made last That's time the so 20th. That's cool. so cool. This would be our 20th full length episode. episode. Well, go us. Yeah, it's super Very fun. Cool. Anyway, I wanted to pop that in because I yes. saw that when I was doing <laughs> editing stuff the other day. Well, yes. Well, as our 20th episode, we are diving into a fun, adventurous world. A world maybe full of snakes, booby traps, giant rolling balls coming down hills trying to crush you. And if you haven't figured it out quite yet, we are diving into the world of Indiana Jones. But beforehand, I have a get to know you question. Tyler, sure. are you ready? I thought about it ahead of time. I am prepared. I am ready. I am ready. It's got to be snakes, right? So, Tyler, what's one of your phobias? <laughs> clowns it had to be clowns, to be clowns. <laughs> i hate i hate i hate clowns jock if you were... i just love the, love the mental image of a clown in the bottom of the plane right fill <laughs> in there i hate clowns jock yeah clowns really freak me out and I actually to the point where i like researched why are clowns so scary for people and it turns it's out the it's the fake smile thing it's not oh. actually so if you think about human evolution and you think about a clown, human evolution, we see humans as alive, you know, vibrant, lovely people. And then the things that are close to human bodies, but not quite human anymore in evolution in nature are dead bodies. Yes. A clown has pale white makeup on. Okay. <laughs> that takes the blood from the face and they look like a dead body that's walking around to oh. our, you know, little snake brain in the yes. back of our brain. And that's why clowns are scary. And I find them to be absolutely terrifying. They um, are top five for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what about for you? What's number one for you then? Tyler, I do believe you know my top number one irrational phobia, which mm. makes no sense at all. Nothing traumatic ever happened to me. And it's, and it's not this animal in general. It's this specific character monster of the whale from pinocchio can't handle that shit at all can't go on storybook land at disneyland i don't like to sit next to any posters of it i don't watch it on the movie i don't watch it during phantasmic i don't want anything to do with monster of the whale from pinocchio he's a mean whale he's a mean whale beautiful blue eyes though nope but angry whale they're the devil's eyes (laughs) the devil has blue eyes yes and then i would say more rational i don't do heights very well Mm-hmm. it's not the heights i'm afraid of it's the landing it's the landing yeah it's that that oh if i jumped right now living in california for me it's uh you know getting up high and then going what if there's an earthquake right now that's the thing that scares the daylights out of me with earthquakes heights. don't scare me like i think because i've been so, so desensitized living in california to earthquakes the tornado hurricane stuff though no no thank you that seems a lot more terrifying no matter where you live there's some sort of natural disaster you have to deal with right. <laughs> and if you're indiana jones 
sometimes that's just the ground you're walking on or the booby traps in the building. Um, so I think we should dive on in now. Mm-hmm. Tyler, I do believe you have a new client. I do have a new client. And as I told Jen when we were talking before we started recording, this is going to be a bit of a bummer. So I do apologize. My client is Marion Ravenwood. Uh, at the time of our session, she is in her late 20s. She's a cisgender woman with she, her, her pronouns. White European American owns a bar in New York City and is coming into therapy because she was recently left at the altar and just found out that she's pregnant. So we are talking about Marion Ravenwood from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Timeline wise, we're actually in between those two movies. Uh, So for those of you who aren't familiar with her story, we'll dig into that a little bit as I talk about how we've been talking to each other. But basically, Marion comes in. She's a pretty resistant client, I would say. I don't I don't foresee her as being somebody who's super open to therapy. She seems to be more of the, you know, I'll deal with this myself. I'll deal with this in the way that I want to deal with this. Um, however, having just found out she's pregnant, some of her old coping skills she's saying are not necessarily working as well as they used to. Uh, Jen is making a drinking motion with her hand, forgetting that we are an audio podcast. Or I was just trying to make you laugh and ruin the recording. (laughs) Either way. And so now that she's pregnant, she can't drink, which has kind of been her main mode of coping, which is going to be something we talk about. You know, she's needing some extra support. So I kind of tell her to like, give me a, give me a rundown of what's been going on. And she starts by talking about this relationship that she had that just recently ended. So she was in a relationship with this man that she's been seeing for a couple of years now. They actually met when she was a teenager. And just in the first talking to her, she talks about how they met when she was a teenager and then met again 10 years later uh, and re- and like kindled up a romance. And from there on started dating each other, said they were going to get married. He went off you know, as an archaeologist and a professor and he's busy all the time and he left her at the altar with no explanation. Shortly thereafter, she found out that she was pregnant and now is kind of at a loss of what to do. And I decided to kind of, you know, dig dig in a little bit more on some background information for this relationship because it's she's kind of glossing over big chunks and pieces of it. And I'm kind of curious what's going on. So I told her to give me more information about it. And it turns out when she said that she met this man as a teenager, what she means to say is she was 15 years old when they met and he was 25. As a mandated reporter in the state of California, that is reportable. Ethically and legally, you do have to report that relationship so that the short hand rule is if one person is old enough to drink and the the other person then must be old enough to drive Uh, meaning if somebody's over 21 then the other partner needs to be over the age of 16 in the state of california i want to make that very very clear we are you know california-based clinicians we know those rules very well if your state has different guidelines it has different guidelines hey that's kind of or your country i know we have people listen who aren't from the u.s too so yeah like if you're Guidelines are different. They're going to be different. But here in California, that's reportable. And that also, regardless of it being something that's mandated reportable, digging into other things of like, what does that mean to her to have this 
mid twenties man. And she's barely in her late twenties now to have him take advantage of her and manipulate her. Cause that's basically what it means when it means it's mandated reportable that the other partner is not old enough to make a conscious decision to consent. So she was manipulated and taken advantage of to consent to a, what sounds like sexual relationship with this older man. Now in the grand scheme of things, they have a 10 year difference in later on in life. That's not a huge deal, but when you're talking about somebody at this age, it, it is very much a very different level of maturity, different level of knowledge about the world. It's for lack of a better, and the clinical term it's icky. And that's kind of what I would say to a client too. I, I use humor a lot in situations, um, but to kind of bring light to this is very serious. You were taken advantage of, and you're kind of downplaying it, which is really not great. And then talk to her about like, okay, so you're saying that you're pregnant now and you can't drink, which has been your main mode of coping. When did that start? When we see her in the, you know, to take the, take the, the mask off a little bit. When we see her in the movies, she's got a pretty big tolerance. Uh, she is not a very large woman. And she's drinking these big, these dudes who probably weigh twice as much as she does under the table. Which means she's built up a tolerance to alcohol. She has been drinking heavily for a very long time. She's only 25-ish in in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was doing that math in my head after uh-huh. the math we already talked about. I was like, so she's only been legal to drink for four years. Well, she's in Nepal. We don't know what Nepal's True. rules rules and Based laws are. Based on U.S. standards where she was yeah. culturated from. Yeah. <sighs> but she's been drinking long enough to have that big of a tolerance. It's likely she's been drinking since the end of her relationship with Dr. Jones, which lasted for about two years. So she was 15 to 17 when she was with him. And during that time, it can make it, it would make sense timeline wise with the tolerance level that she shows that she was drinking since that breakup, probably up until, you know, when we, when she comes in to see me. So to talk about sort of, you know, that kind that, that changes the, the type of therapy we're doing. We're going to be talking about alcoholism and talking about addiction and really working into those types of discussions because let's see like let's start looking at how everything is linked together all of these patterns make sense in context with each other she's not just somebody who's drinking a lot she's someone who's drinking a lot because that's all the only way she knew how to cope after being manipulated and you know put into a relationship with a much older man and then he left her and i would guess that it's the same pattern where he left her with no explanation and then you know comes back 10 years later they oh it looks like maybe it's going to work this time leaves again and talking to her about you know those patterns and it's going you know never judging i i do not judge my clients with the patterns that they live their lives in i think everything i i think the sentence i say most in therapy is that makes sense and given her experiences it makes sense a 17 year old doesn't really know how to cope very well with anything to be honest, uh, I see teens as some of my primary clients, like that's teens are who I love to work with. 
and teens are not good at coping. They're just not. They don't have the life experience to know that, hey, there's this thing that makes me feel really good right now, and it might be detrimental to my health later, versus if I do this thing that doesn't feel super good, but if I do it consistently, I'll feel really good. <laughs> you know, versus something like, you know, a substance use versus like, you know, exercise regularly or, you know, the, the kind of stuff that we see improves mental health over a long period of time consistently. Um, most teenagers are going to, and I mean, a lot of humans are kind of, you know, wired to go for the instant gratification first. So it makes sense. Uh, and that's where we would start with that and see what the alcoholism for her she is, you know, she's pregnant now, so she's choosing not to drink. What's that withdrawal like for her? Because alcoholism is one of the withdrawals that can kill you. So is she at that level currently? Does she need medical intervention? That sort of a deal. Um, so the first, so I have my notes this time listed in sort of order of importance of what we need to talk about. The first thing is reporting that sexual abuse of a minor. It is first on the list because it is a legal and ethical thing if if that comes across your therapy work with someone and you don't do it you can lose your license you'll get fined lots and lots of money it's not good so you take that very seriously i do it with the client in the room so in you know 1936 or wherever we're talking right now different rules probably societally around this but i'm speaking as a clinician in 2021 we're here working with a woman in her late 20s who was abused as a minor with somebody who has access to younger people still. Uh, we are reporting that together. And it would be like going, okay, look, this is reportable. We have to call Child Protective Services, even though you're not a minor anymore. This is something we have to report and just get on file. You and I are going to work together to do this. Uh, I am going to call them and you, we're going to tell them the story together. And that's usually how I've done it. Um, I've, I've filed CPS reports. I've filed APS reports, which is Adult Protective Services. Um, I have worked with both. I have mixed reviews about both of those systems in place, but I don't think this is the place to talk about that particular thing. Um, yeah, for those who don't know me in real life, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about bureaucracy, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> But if we go to sort of the, so that's gonna be our first thing that we do together, plain and simple. It just has to be done legally. Next is going to be connecting her with resources that she feels comfortable with. So perhaps going someplace where she can withdraw safe, safely, getting some medical evaluation, especially since she's pregnant, I don't want that withdrawal to be the thing that takes her out of the world. And that's, uh, you know, quote from one of my supervisors, which is the only good therapy is therapy you live through. So to start her off, it's, you know, let's get you medically checked out. Let's make sure that you're at, you've got a doctor, you've got some, you're getting prenatal care. Uh, you've got access to insurance, which in California people can get on if they don't have a lot of income. She's a business owner. So it's possible that she does have insurance already or knows how to get some. Now, again, in 1936, this wasn't as much of a thing because uh, it's pre-World War II. We don't have benefits tied with jobs yet. But that's, you know, again, looking at it from a modern lens versus how it would actually be back then. And then after that stuff, getting the, getting the basic life stuff out of the way and the legal ethical stuff out of the way. 
the first place I would start is from a, a feminist approach with her. We're not going to be doing a lot of act work right away. We're not going to be doing a lot of narrative work right away because she's not going to want to be here anyway. She is definitely an independent person. She does not want this as like a, you tell me what to do and I'm going to change my life. That's not going to happen. And I think those first two steps, like they're necessary and we need them in order to, you know, meet the legal and ethical, you know, qualifications of the field. I don't think she would be super comfortable with me being like, okay, so here's this resource. Here's that resource. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, it would be more likely me just going, this is a list of resources I have for people going through stuff like you. And you can call who you want to call. You can talk to who you want to talk to. Here's the list. Um, if you need any extra explanation or help, let me know. She's a fiercely independent person. It's not my job to tell her how to live her life and tell her where to go. I And, you know, let's be honest, behind the scenes, I don't have a list of resources for women who need prenatal care or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I would have generated that list specifically for her but I'm not going to tell her that. Uh, I, I think if I did, again, you're going to run into resistance of her being like, I can do this myself. But if you say, hey, look, I've got a list already that I keep for people going through similar situations as you, here you go. It, she's gonna be more receptive to that. Moving forward from that, though, we're gonna do like that feminist work. So working on empowerment. And really for me, what I wrote was just working on empowerment through validation of her strengths. Uh, so with Marion, and I think this is interesting because Marion, her experiences have left her not necessarily fitting within the traditional gender roles of a cisgender woman, um, which is awesome. She's a great character because of that. I absolutely love her as a character. That's why I picked her. So I would, I would similarly to what you would use with someone who is a traditional male uh, socialized client is what I would use with her. So we're going to be talking lots of humor. I'm going to be validating. I'm going to be joking with her. The kinds of humor that I'm going to use are going to be specific to a therapeutic context. So for example, there are basically when you're making a joke, there are four kinds of joke. There are other defeating jokes. So when you're making fun of someone else or roasting someone else, there are self-defeating jokes when you're being self-deprecating. There are jokes that are more social. So it's about more about bringing people together. And there are jokes that are uh, self like building up. So when you're bragging in a joking manner about how awesome you are or about how awesome someone else is. We find in the research that the first two types, self-deprecating or other defeating, tend to lower people's self-esteem and make them more vulnerable to symptoms of depression. So if you find somebody who's using that kind of joking a lot, it's something to look into. I say like, oh, I see you're making a lot of jokes about yourself. How does that reflect on how you actually view yourself? Um, but the other two are totally fair game in therapy to use. And I use them all the time. So with her, I would be like, what was it like being a badass and traveling the world and like, you know, making jokes that are going to boost her ego a little bit, um, not because she needs that boost, but because that's going to make her feel more comfortable with me. And like, you know, she is, and to be fair, she is a badass, like <laughs> undeniably. So to be like, you know, what was it like living in Nepal and drinking these dudes under the table? And like, what was it like being on an adventure and doing all this stuff? And in the meanwhile, as that stuff is going on, we're going to be working through some of the stories that are here because she's also had a lot of really unfortunate stuff happen to her 
she was kidnapped in Egypt at one point by Nazis. That's a, that's a little rough. Uh, she was tortured at one point during that kidnapping. She was forced to go to dinner with this slimy guy that made jokes about, you know, sexual jokes about her. Um, and is so kind of going through all those traumas and processing and working with her on all of this stuff. But really at the beginning, first stage, just empowerment, 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 empowerment. You can do this. You are strong. You are independent. Let's get you into those resources that you need and that you can get some firm footing under you. And then we're going to go talk about all the stuff that's happened to you. Because you, you know, if we're talking like classical psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to have a firm foundation before you can make any changes in your life. Uh, in personal notes, in clients I've worked with previously, in um, government situations, I'll say, uh, without dr name dropping any particular place, but I, I worked for the government as a therapist for a little while. And you see people who are homeless and struggling with addiction and have no social support network, have no job, have no income. What's the first thing to do with them? I, I can't sit there and do talk therapy with them. They're not going to be able to, they are not in that place yet. So you have to do case management hierarchy of needs. Okay. Let's get you housed. Let's start there because they're not going to be able to not be on that whatever substance they're using until they're housed in a safe place usually. Okay, now you're housed. Sometimes with housing you need to have income first. So it's like, okay, can you work? If you can work, let's work on getting you a job, getting you at least not using enough that you can go work. Uh let's if not that, let's sign you up for disability and get you attached to that so you have some form of income so you can get into a income assisted housing. Then once you have a you know income and housing, then you can start working on those other things. Okay, let's talk about the coping that was involved in that substance and how it kept you safe while you were on the streets or what you know what it might what might have you. And that's gonna be the same idea here with Marion. She's a business owner, so she's got money, she's got income, she's probably got a place to stay. Um, so really with her, it's just going, okay, do you have the medical treatment you need? Do you have this a safe support network of people that you can rely on? If not, how can we help you with that? Can we get you into a process group? Can we get you into a peer support group? You know, what do you need? And with the addiction piece too, I think it's pretty common that people get uh, sent to AA or other addiction groups that are not necessarily 12 step. Um, for her, that might be a step too. It depends, uh, and, you know, it depends on every person, everyone's individual. I know that Alcoholics Anonymous works for some people and for others, they just absolutely can't stand it. So it would be about finding what group works for her. Is group going to work for her? Does she need individual counseling on this piece? And really for her, again, that first piece is just, you can do this and this is how. And getting her comfortable with asking for help because I do think that that's going to be the biggest issue here. Her biggest barrier to treatment is just going to be getting comfortable asking other people to support her. She's gonna need support. And I think if we can get her that, she'll be on the right track to do some of this other work. The other thing that I talk about with clients all the time with me if somebody has deep complex trauma, that's usually not our first stage of work. And with Marion, 
this isn't going to be our first stage of work either. I have lots of people come in for consults that are like, I want to work on this right now. I am ready. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whether whether you're coping with, yeah. <laughs> whether you're coping with alcoholism or food or other people, uh, sex, love, uh, you know, whether you're coping with not coping, you know, coping with thoughts of suicidality, whatever it might be you're not ready to dig into that complex trauma right away, starting a therapeutic relationship with a new therapist. And I have seen it happen with people where they came in, they said, I can't, I want to process my trauma. Okay, cool. Well, we need to build a relationship first. So you trust me to do that. And I want to get you to the point where you can have strong emotions come up and they don't ruin your day. So that way, when we do start processing this stuff, it stays in here. When I do complex trauma work with people, when we're done with the session, I typically ask them if they're ready to go back to the land of the living because it does feel like you've dragged yourself through hell and back mm -hmm. uh, by the time you're done with it. I know so Jen, often, no, just really reflecting on that um, coping skills piece because even just the first couple weeks of building a therapeutic relationship is so important because they have to trust you to tell the story. And then while they're telling the story, do you know that they're going to be able to deal with the feelings that they leave the office with? Because I commonly remind clients that we see each other for one hour, which is about 50 minutes, once a week. And there's six other days, 23 more hours that you have to deal with during the week. So let's make sure that you have a toolbox of things, not just one coping skill, but a toolbox that you can use throughout the week to help. And it takes, it takes a minute to get there. It does. And I've worked with people who came in wanting to process that trauma like that. Mm -hmm. And by the time we're done with that first stage of therapy, they're like, actually, I don't really need to talk about that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think we kind of worked through what I needed to work through because oftentimes it's not about what happened to you. It's about how you've been dealing with it yep. and how you've been, how you've been surviving it honestly is the, is the better way of putting that. Um, it's not about, the story that happened most of the time. And for some people it is, and we go in and we do that. I, I love trauma-focused narr narrative therapy. That's what I use that for. No, it's so but true. But also sometimes you just don't. Mm -hmm. By the time you know, you know how to deal with your emotions when they come up and deal with your triggers when they come up, you might not need to go through that story. It's lost its power at that point. Mm -hmm. For others, they do. So that's always why you know that first stage of therapy, at least with me, is a lot of just teaching. It's a lot of going, this is, this is how you deep breathe the right way. This is how you, you know, ground. This is how you relax. This is how, you know, and just teaching these little skills that add up on each other. So that way, when something does happen, you don't totally lose yourself in the emotion of it. And I talk to clients about practicing those things when the big emotions aren't there. Because we're mm -hmm. not going to be able to use them if we don't practice them during the little emotions. Um, and, you know, if, you're, if we're not using the tool until the tidal wave, it's not going to help us. We have to exactly. commonly practice them and use them. And even if they're like, oh, this is pointless. I'm fine right now. No, let's, let's breathe mm -hmm. so that when we need it, we know the breath is there. You don't put your life jacket on after you fall overboard. No. That's kind of the idea. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's Marion. Like I said, kind of a bummer of a story. If you don't really know the backstory of her character, there's, there's a lot there. That's just like real sad, uh, absolutely. makes Indiana Jones look like 
not as much of a hero as you would think he is. Um, and then just thinking that this, I was doing a Google search of when was prohibition during all of this oh. and like the depression and world war one and all of the, like, if you think about the context of the movie, what they were, the world was going through and what the United States was going through at that time, while these events were also happening. Very yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I think, you know, I stayed away from the historical context a little bit here. Cause I just wanted to talk about working how I would work with her right um, this, we bring it to the the lens of the now too but just yeah. I was just thinking I was like she, she's she's like a raging alcoholic in some ways during the prohibition days like dang girl like well she's also in Nepal so yeah. for most of well, it she didn't she didn't start off in Nepal so she didn't but she's in Nepal for most of her yeah. adult life um so there there's different I'm sure there was different rules around that. different different going goings arounds <laughs> but as always why Marion um, I, again, I love Marion as a character. She's such a strong female character. Um, now to be fair, she's a strong female character cause she's written to be more male coded, uh, which is, that's, I think, you know, a, another conversation for another time, but for the eighties to see a woman in a, in a bar fight and kicking ass is a step forward, a pretty mm-hmm. big step forward. Um, she's not your typical, so I'm, I'm a bit of a film nerd. I think that that's probably pretty obvious at this point. Um, you know, a lot of the Indiana Jones films take these cues from old B movie, like 19, it's not even B movies. They're like 1930s serials that were like about adventuring and stuff like that. And it's the same time that the film noir genre was getting kind of taking off. And so you have that, you have a lot of noir influence in Indiana Jones. And so she's supposed to be sort of like the femme fatale character. She's supposed to be the character that's like, you know, the, the, um, the reason the hero is not able to succeed all the time. He keeps having to go back and rescue her and that kind of stuff. But if you notice, she doesn't need rescuing most of the time. Like she, fights in the bar fight she's pretty good on her feet in the egypt kind of escape scene um and even when she's captured by belloc and toad she tries to escape before indiana tries to rescue her uh she tries to escape on her own she doesn't succeed and that's actually what ends up getting her tortured but you know she is pretty good on her own uh she's smart she's resilient she's super independent like i said just such a strong female character and so badass i just absolutely love marion ravenwood absolutely no she is she's amazing and if again as a little bit of a history nerd with filmer and if you think about when she lived to be a single mom in that decade mm-hmm. like she broke all customs and norms yeah and that is epic so. which what we know about her as a character totally makes sense <laughs> totally makes sense she wouldn't she wouldn't let a guy tell her what's up exactly well thank you tyler that was mm-hmm. that was very cool and we will take a short break and be right back Hey y'all, this is Jennifer. We wanted to reach out and let you all know that we are on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories with Shrinks and on Twitter, Shrink Stories. 
we post before episodes little sneak peeks about what we're talking about and trying to engage more with our community about the topic so you can find that and join the story with us online welcome back to stories with shrinks where we are talking about indiana jones this episode i just wrapped up marion ravenwood and i believe you have a new client jen i do and we're actually going to take it a little bit farther back than you even did tyler and we're going back to like the 1912s and i have a 13 year old teenage boy sitting with me and he was referred to me by his boy scout leader after a, a recent outing where um this kid decided to leave the group go explore some caves ended up getting chased for stealing one of the items from a group of what we're assuming were grave robbers but they could have been there for a reason and um, keep saying that his defense was it should have been in a museum. And we're, we're diving into the world of a very young, kind of newly missioned in life, Indiana Jones. <laughs> what you're saying is we're going on a young Indiana Jones adventure. We're going on a young Indiana Jones adventure. Um, and so again, working with Indiana Jones, but from a different perspective. I didn't really want to quite take him on as an adult. Um, I wanted to see if there was a different way to do this. And I was like, wait a sec. He was a teenager at one point. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about those early teenage years. Um, so again, he is brought in um, reluctantly, not wanting to be there. Um, things, you know, talking about your feelings, talking about what's going on in life is stupid. There's so many more cooler, better things to be out doing in the world. Um, he has missions and goals and doesn't want to be stuck talking to someone else. But he is referred to um, to come talk. Um, in my world, through the school, Boy Scout leader was probably also a part of the school at the time. So that's how we are all connected here. Um, but our our main four things um, that we want to talk about in, in therapy um, is this constant need that he keeps putting himself into danger. Like what is going on that you are voluntarily stepping in in these moments um you know kind of from that perspective of like you could be going out hanging out with friends and you decided to dive into a cave full of grave robbers let's talk about this we want to talk about his relationship with his parents um he mentioned that his mother has passed and his father is kind of lost in his own books in his own world and obsessed with his own theories and um, is very academically focused and pushes him to be very academically focused as well and what that kind of led to him and something he was very reluctant to share but it came up when he was talking about what was going on that day Um, he's developed a phobia of snakes Um, and we want to start talking about that it's Nothing that is quite interrupting his his daily life, but something that I specifically do with teenagers, and I'll talk about this as we continue, for his goals in life and what he wants to do, it might get in the way later. So that's kind of my in for talking about it now. So again, Indiana is a 13-year-old boy, and um, to all the clinicians out there that has worked with teenagers, especially stereotypical teenage boys, they are not the easiest clients to work with. There is very much a reluctance um, to talk about feelings, talk about events in your life. We are an adult stranger who is telling them kind of what to do, and that is the last thing 
another kid wants in their life is an adult stranger telling them what to do. Um, so I always try to make it more about what do you want to talk about? What are you into? What do you want this space to be? We don't have to talk about feelings. We don't have to talk about what happened. We don't have to talk about any of that. Usually we get there eventually, or we kind of sneak it in through metaphorical work. Um, but we're going to talk about other stuff in the process. And I was thinking for him a really kind of cool way to get him connected, not only to himself, um, but to experiences and to take one of his greatest interests would be to do archetypal therapy. So um, kind of taking a Jungian narrative approach, looking at these cultural, these cultural associated and collective unconscious archetypes we have in our histories. And tell me what you know about them, Indy. Bring me something each week, bring me a story, bring me a lost treasure that you've studied about, bring me a historical figure that your dad's making you learn and teach it to me. Take me on a journey with you. We can't necessarily go on these journeys yet, but let's bring them into therapy and take me on a journey each week. And what is important about this artifact to you? What do you connect to these figures with? What these historical figures, why do you care about them? What makes them cool? Why do you hate them? Especially bringing me in people from history or artifacts that are associated with things that you don't agree with or don't like to talk about. Because we're going to talk about why you don't like, like that. What about this leader pisses you off? Uh, what did you think that they did wrong? And in the process, we want to start hitting these themes about his need of stepping in to do the right thing, stepping in, in dangerous situations to do the right thing. Um, and this desire to make sure it's in a museum, right? Like you're technically stealing stuff too. Um, in, especially if you're 13, right? You don't know these people, you don't know what they're doing there. Um, and you know, that, that key difference between the grave robber and the um, archeologist, right? Cause there is a huge difference. Um, and how do we get at, how do we stay out of trouble? if we're gonna be doing these things. Like, let's talk about the realistic things that you have to keep in mind. Um, you know, we don't want the police showing up to your house each week because you got in trouble. Cause what are the long-term consequences of that? Um, with teenagers, like I mentioned, like, what are his goals? Cool, you wanna be an archeologist. You want to go off to school. You can't have a police record. You gotta finish school. You can't be put into juvie. Um, so let's talk about how we meet those goals. And so often motivation in school is something that teenagers struggle with. And if we jump back to like today's times, it's particularly hard for a lot of teenagers with motivation in school. Um, and a lot of them I talk about, so what are your long-term goals? Do you wanna be moved out of the house when you're 18? Do you wanna get away from mom and dad? I'm gonna guarantee you a high school diploma is a lot faster ticket out of the house than dropping out of high school or failing out of high school. Um, you want choices, you want options. I don't care what you do with those choices, but you want choices, I can guarantee that. Um, and talking to him kind of in that same perspective of like, if you're going off to boarding school or going off to whatever schooling after this, you're gonna want choices. And if you get kicked out of these schools, you're not gonna have choices after a while. And when we talk about these leaders in history or these um, items, 
anytime there's kind of like that neglectful father role archetype. What do you think about his thoughts, his feelings? What do you think it was like for their kids? Do you think that's ever what it's like for you too? Um, or even seeing the other friends that he hangs out with and their father figures and starting to talk about, do you ever notice that it's not quite the same with your dad? What is it like to have a dad stuck in the books? And then probably the hardest conversation he would have would be his mom, the passing of his mother. And talking about it from the, the lost story perspective of tell me the story of your mom through maybe an artifact. What would she leave behind to find? Um, can you bring something that tells that story of your mom in? And what do you miss about her? What don't you miss about her? I think it's really important to, when, when we're talking about this, to talk about the mom you had um, and the mom we tend to idolize now that she's passed um, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about these things, giving him that space to talk about it through a different sense and it's different lens, even bringing in like sand tray therapy of, can you show me, can you create the story? Can you create the scene? Even if he came in one week and was like, I did this huge thing. I dove into a cave. I stole a cross. There were snakes. Cool. Can you actually show me it in the sand tray? Can you recreate this adventure you went on this past weekend? Then I can start to connect and externalize these, these characters in his life. The grave robber, the friend, the sidekick. What do you think they're thinking about? And through the Santre, externalize that role and externalize those problems. Finally, the phobia of snakes. We would talk about like what it was like to land into a snake pit and have them crawling all over you to, and work our way up to really describing those feelings and describing those sensations. What else was going on at the time that was happening? You were being chased. You had people who you thought were gonna hurt you, maybe even throw you off a train. Those add fears. And talk about what it's like to have anxiety when something like that comes up. For a boy who wants to be fearless and be that leader, what is it like to have a phobia? Was it like to kind of think of yourself as weak in that way maybe? And something I do with clients a lot is using pop culture, talk about, and in this case, archetypes, what were these, what were the weaknesses of these leaders? And they, did that make them any less a leader or a hero or an adventurer? Did these, um, did Achilles heel actually stop him on a day-to-day -day basis? and talk about these different archetypes in that way as well and help him realize that he is, he's bigger than this phobia. We might still not like snakes. That doesn't mean we have to avoid the adventure because of it. And really just try to provide him a platform that it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's okay to talk about our feelings. It's okay to talk about everything but feelings and set him up hopefully on a path that he is more confident in himself 
I feel like with Indy, it would be a very short lived therapy session. I feel like once he had the opportunity to leave the house, he would leave the house and I would no longer be seeing him, but hopefully it makes a little bit of an impact. And that's Indy. Yes. Teenage boy is notoriously good clients. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody, everybody loves working with them. (laughs) (laughs) I've had Uh, some solid young male clients that I, like I said, teens teens are one of my faves. I love working with teenagers. There is the stereotype of it for sure. (laughs) I I think some, I mean, we could have a whole episode just on stereotypes that clinicians have Mm -hmm. on certain clients that are not healthy and definitely outdated, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Um, I think the archetypal work is so interesting because it's so different from what you normally do. I think it's super cool to bring that in. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking as somebody who, you know, knows how you work. That's really cool. I don't think I just talk about it a lot, but I do it in different ways um, to just uh, still in still kind of in genre. Um, I have a, I had a client that was struggling with expressing feelings and how to like find examples from her life and just could not connect with this dialogue. So I was like, okay, how does Obi-Wan and Kenobi express feelings? Yeah. How does, and we just did the archetypes of Star Wars basically um, and the force and whatnot. Um, but I think a lot of narrative and parts work comes from a world of Jungian archetypes. Mm-hmm and that collective unconscious because so many of our mythos have similar stories. Like we all, most stories that take on the hero's journey or take on an archetypal focus have like the wise old man and the giving mother or Mm -hmm. like earthly mother figure. They have the, um, the sidekick, the, the person who gifts the item or that Mm -hmm. magical item that helps them on, on the way, the hermit, um, and we have so many, so many set tropes and the characters in different cultures throughout history that find their way around again. And it's really interesting. And I think he would mm-hmm. connect with that a lot. Yeah. Researching the hero's journey is very, very interesting because it's, it's an archetypical story that has all of those kind of rules in it. And you can apply it to Harry Potter. You can apply it to Star Wars. You can apply it to Lord of the Rings. You can apply it to Indiana Jones. You can apply it to Indiana Jones. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's, it, yeah, anytime there's like a hero character who has to go through struggles in order to overcome. Uh, so any sort of story where you've heard of like, oh, you're the chosen one is a, mm-hmm. is a uh, hero's journey story. And if you can understand that concept, you can actually really understand how people think of themselves in their own lives. Yeah. Um, now, that does not mean everybody views themselves as a protagonist. Uh, most of the time, actually, people don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people with self-esteem issues will view themselves as side characters, the hermit, the old man, the whoever. There's an Instagram trend. I don't know. It could be TikTok. I'm old. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going around <laughs> about, like, I'm not the main character. I'm this. And it's almost priding themselves on that they're not necessarily the that. main character. And I think it's beautiful because it's identifying who you are. But they get to be the main character, too. Yeah. And I love that because protagonists usually have, you know, this, this protagonist syndrome where they're yes. really stupid. Yes. Uh, so. <laughs> That's why I love the the play Puff so much because it takes yeah. the sidekicks and make them the main character. And I so often like to do that with clients where I'll map out what the hero's journey is. Like I get out the whiteboard, we take their favorite thing, we map out the hero's journey. And I say like, 
So you know, or you have a belief, I should say, that you're not the main character or you're not the hero. Humor me for a moment. Mm -hmm. What if we mapped out your experience right now? What if we map out your trials and tribulations, your sidekick, your mentors, the person who said you get to go on an adventure? Which part of that story are you in right now? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the other thing. I think anytime we're going through struggles, you know, you're in that rising action part of the story. And then there's a climax and then there's a falling action. And the difference between a a story and life is that that just happens over and over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. I know I've had clients that go, so I should be able to just sit on the hillside and be done then. And I'm like, uh, unfortunately, there's going to be another call for adventure. Or let's say, yeah, fortunately, no, you, no, there's going to be another yeah, call to adventure. Yeah. You don't just get to be, to be Thanos looking over a grateful <laughs> universe. Um, Eventually, Thor is going to come on in. <laughs> and this time he'll go for the head. Right? Um, <laughs> I feel like that's probably, oh, wait, I didn't ask. You did why not in, ask. Why Indy? Why Indy? Why Indy? Well, you took Marion. No. <laughs> I did. Um, I I knew I wanted to do The Last Crusades. That's my favorite Indiana Jones movie. That's the one I've always connected to the most. And when I was going through the films, I, I'm going to be honest, I didn't want to try to dig up too much backstory on some of these really cool, um, but kind of one-off characters in the movie. Like, I thought it would be really funny to do the night. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, me walking through the the trials each week to try to get to him to do, like, <laughs> home therapy. <laughs> like, what is it like it's to really, be stuck in it's a It's really dangerous. Right. I mean, there's a good metaphor in there somewhere about working with people who are homebound. Um, right. But... but no, that's, no. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I was thinking, well, Indy would be probably my first choice. Um, but I didn't want to do Indiana Jones from where he was in that movie. Mm-hmm. I was just like, eh, this this wouldn't be like where I would want to take it. And I do like working with youth and teens. And instead of doing the end of the story, let's do the beginning of the story. What would happen if he came into therapy at the beginning of the story? Maybe when he met a teenage girl in his 20s if he had been in therapy and more confident about himself he would have respected her a little bit more (laughs) and then later not leave her at the altar because he would have had the strong self-esteem that you can um, have the family and the job at the same time you don't have to sacrifice who you are for somebody else so that early intervention which is so important (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, I think that's that's something that comes up a lot where it's like, imagine if someone, I, and this is uh, coming from a supervisor talking to a group of therapists who are associates who are almost licensed in training. And it's like, imagine if somebody had someone like you or you're, at the age that you needed them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I would be a different person if I had had, you know, more support than I had earlier on. Um, and also I would be a different person. So it's hard to live in that thing. It's like, I like the that person I am if. now. Yeah, so it's okay. And then you notice also the people we do have in our lives. Like when you go back to that hero's arc, who were those early mentors? It may not have been the therapist that, yes, that guiding light person early on. Um, And for Indy, it would be like, okay, so who are the people in your life that you can look towards as Mm -hmm. mentor figures? And it's hard sometimes when you're 13 to see them. Yeah. And the other thing being, 
a mentor doesn't have to be a positive mentor either. No. I feel like he probably like in the, the thing with Indiana Jones and his dad is that they are the same mm-hmm. personality. Mm-hmm. And I think Indy does a lot to try to not be like his dad and instead becomes more like him. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, I, I also really enjoy last crusade Raiders is my favorite. Um, but last crusade is also an acceptable answer mostly because Sean Connery. Um, but, but the idea of like the two of them they're throughout that movie, they're so, par- they run parallel to each other, like to the point where like it's creepy and people comment on it now, but like, you know, they, they both slept with the, the woman who ends right. up being the, they both German fell spy. for the, the femme fatale yeah. of that movie. And yeah. They both fell, they both fell for the honeypot thing that happened with her. At the end, the they also way. mimic when he's dying on the ground and going through the stages they cut back and forth and they're kind of mimicking the dialogue mm-hmm. they're both actively figuring it out at the same time yeah because they have the same the same brain that way and, and it, his greatest it, it, mentor though was the grave robber at yeah. the age of 13 who gave yeah. him the hat <laughs> yeah and looks exactly like how he looks when he yes. dresses later on <laughs> Um, but I think that also the, you know, that same parallelism makes it so powerful. Like the end of that movie makes me cry. Like nobody's mm-hmm. business. The, the last scene in the temple as the temple's collapsing and, you know, Indy goes for the, goes for the grail and he's doing the same thing his dad's been doing for the last, you know, 30, 40 years of his life. He's saying, you know, screw everything else. I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the Holy grail. Mm-hmm. And his dad grabs him by the arm. And for the first time in the whole movie, calls him indiana yep and and just says indiana let it go and it's that parallelism of like you don't have to chase the same thing like be better than i was mm-hmm. you, you it's done just we did it, it. it we found it it's done <laughs> we did it and it almost killed us don't yeah. let it kill you mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful beautiful movie it's so um good. problematic in a lot of ways so problematic Um, I think we can say that about a lot of things that were made, you know, 40, 50 years ago now, Um, you know. uh, Which is why these characters needed therapy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think that's the other thing, too. Um, I mean, before we we head off, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's me. Of course, there's a little bit of a tangent. Is like people talk about now, like, oh, the person's so problematic, the person's so problematic. And it's like, yeah, because Mm -hmm. people are problematic nobody right. is perfect no one is doing everything 100 percent right all the time mm-hmm. it's about being good enough doing enough to leave a positive mark on the world uh but yeah there are problematic things that happen and it's not to excuse those behaviors but it's to say like let's talk about that. yeah problematic people are always going to exist mm-hmm. uh it's it's not it's a symptom of humanity not a symptom of society absolutely uh, and just for Indiana Jones, it's a film that is based in like the the 30s, the 20s through the 30s, in most parts, right? I think uh-huh. the la- the crystal. It's the third. It's the, the 30s 50s. through like the 40s. Oh uh, yeah, because I guess uh, last Crusades yeah. is the 40s, and it was the film itself was also written in the 80s. So it's mm-hmm. the 80s perspective of the 1940s. Yeah, and it's understanding... Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's view of those right. old pop, those right. old pulp action adventure movies. Right. From the mindset of the 80s and yeah. remembering the historical context that these films were written in and having an open dialogue about it and talking yeah. about it and saying like, yeah, indie's really problematic. Let's talk about why. 
Yeah. Because you can have that conversation then and to say, why is this not okay? Let's talk about it. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's good for us for for an episode. That sounds that's like seems like a good amount of time. Yes. And we did the thing and it <laughs> sounded great. Yes. Um, so yeah, until next time, uh, please, if you liked what you heard, leave a review, follow us on social media. It really means a lot. Tell your friends. Uh, it would be really, really cool to grow our audience a little bit more. Uh, I would super love that. Um, and yeah, take care. Bye, y'all. Stories with Shrinks is an entertainment and education podcast. Our views are our own and should not be considered canon or associated with any of the media or universes we discuss. And thank you to Purple Planet Music for our theme song, Phoenix Rising. You can find music for all your podcasting or YouTube needs at www.purple-planet.com.